This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone from the band The Cult, it is Billy Duffy. And to discuss all things Billy and all things rock, we have co-host Adam Hamilton. Of course, he is L.A. Gunn's utility infielder, right? You are you are the everything guy. You're the um, Swiss Army knife of L.A. Guns, correct? <laughs> I'm what, you just tell me what you need, man. Tell me where, what you need and where you need me. I'm there. Yeah, so so by the way, welcome by that. Always nice to have you. You're have always been very kind and helpful. When we did that Kiss project years ago, uh you got Phil Lewis and the guys in there to do uh, the song Master and Slave, which to me is still my favorite Kiss cover. I don't know what you guys did and how you produced it and how you stuck it all together, but I think the lyrics and Phil's voice just fit. It was phenomenal. I think it turned out great. I just listened to that again the other day, and I was extremely pleased with how well it stood up over time. It sounds great. Thanks for having us, letting us be a part of it, man. We were glad to. Yeah, we we raised thirty some no, sorry, thirty five thousand dollars for that uh, palliative care home in uh, the Vaudreuil Soulange. Yeah, so in in out just outside of Montreal. But uh, let us talk, Billy Duffy. Now, I just had a chance to see the band on June first in Montreal, and I have to tell you, back in the day. Uh, when we were being bombarded with uh, Poison videos and and Def Leppard videos and Bon Jovi videos, the cult videos to me always sort of stood out as being sort of weird and sort of creepy and just sort of maybe a little too alternative. And so I didn't hang on to the band then, but then I've seen them live over the years, including this last show a couple of weeks ago in Montreal. And that is how you have to appreciate the band they are just a monster monster band live so my first question is have you seen them live and have you you know what do you think oh yeah man i the cults were always one of my favorite bands since i was a kid since since uh love love still is in my top top 10 of all of all time records i think it's perfect record from top to bottom because i always loved that alt sound uh you know i always liked it as much as i love the rock i love the depeche modes and the cults and the cures and all that new orders my wife and i have a, a real affinity for that stuff so i always loved them but yeah man just incredible live band and they they're they're amazing absolutely oh, oh absolutely terrific now when I posted on my socials, my Twitter and all that, that um, I had seen the band and that I had interviewed Billy, you were one of the first ones on Facebook and Twitter to say, great guys, nice guys, love yeah, Billy. Yeah, Billy. Billy's one of my mates. I've known him for years. Um, just a super nice guy, man. As nice as it comes. Totally sweet and humble and cool. And every time I always need, uh, if I was uh, needed a guitar signed or some some stuff signed to for a, some kind of a fundraiser, he was always the first one to step up. Man, just a sweet guy. He's just a fun cat. So I've known him and, and Ian for years and jammed with both of them at different events and different things. And I'm just I'm a huge fan. Billy actually approached me back before. Damon Fox joined the band and said, "Hey, we're thinking about uh, adding a switching out our guitar player and getting a guy who could play keyboards. Are you interested?" And I thought about it because I love the Cult and absolutely love those guys. But you know, I had to be honest with them, and I'm just not enough of a keyboard player to to. Uh, I would be lying if I said 
yeah, I can do the gig. You know, as a rhythm guitarist, it would have been a dream and a piece of cake, but they wanted a guy who's a real player. And Damon Fox obviously is, is a virtuoso. So they got the right guy for sure. I was excited to see him and he's, he's expanded that the sound of that band and taken it to a whole new level. So I'm going to actually, actually we're going to see him Saturday night at the Greek. So I'm excited about it. Oh, well, you're, you're going to love that show. And, and by the way, since, uh, since they called and asked you to, to, to be a replacement, uh, Mick Brown of Dawkin has uh, recently announced that he is retired. Has uh, Dawkin yeah, called you? To, has Dawkin called you to fill in on drums again? No, I, they haven't. They haven't. But you know, I'm sure if I got on the phone with Don and John and, and bugged them enough, they'd probably let me. But I'm kind of a homebody these days. You know, I tried to go out and do the the road thing last last summer with LA Guns on rhythm guitar, and I just found that it. You know, leaving for a month at a time is just—it's just too hard right now in my life. You know, for for many reasons. You know, one being my little girl needs a lot more care. My wife needs a lot more support, and I just literally will get out there for weeks, and I'll—I'll have—I'll—I'll I'll miss calls that say, "Hey, we need a song for this movie. Can you do it tomorrow?" And I'm like, "No," and they're like, "All right, we'll talk to you later." And I'm just hitting myself in the head. And so, you know, I just can't, I can't miss those calls anymore. You got to, you got to be home in the studio to get to have those calls and be able to field it and get them what they need by the next day. So that's kind of my life these days is, is, uh, I get the studio tan. You know, you're, you're right about that because if you're one of these go-to guys and they call and you're not a go-to guy, they stop calling. Yep. They stop calling real fast too. Yeah. They won't even, they don't even, uh, they don't even think twice about it. They just go down the list. So you, you, the whole thing is you just got to be available and you got to say yes. And even if it's something that you don't think you can do, you still say yes. And you go, all right, now I've got to figure out how to do this. So, uh, but that's one of the good things about having lots of talented friends, you know, and being in LA is if I have, if something falls in my lap that I need to do for TV or film or, or something like that, I can say, well, okay, let's see. I don't play violin and they want a real violin on it. So I, I, off the top of my head, I know a couple of great violin players. I can have them over here in a few minutes. So, you know, you just kind of field it out and that's what good producing is. is knowing when to pull in the right person for the right gig, you know, to help you finish a project. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, for fans of L.A. Guns, you are, don't have any issues with the I mean, you didn't leave because of any issues other than you wanted to be home and feel those calls. Oh, There's no, no, no animosity. Oh, man. I, no, I love those guys. You know, absolutely. It was it was such a such a blast getting back to do a couple of uh, runs with them and going to Europe for for a month and doing the States for a couple of weeks. I love those guys. I'm going to go see them and, you know, I'm, I might uh, bug my way up into sitting in with them. Maybe one song. I asked Tracy what's in the set. He said he was going to see. So maybe I'll be able to hop up on one song of the whiskey. But I love those guys. Those guys are my brothers. And actually, Tracy just called me. He's doing a project with Michael Sweet um, called Sunbomb. And he asked me to be a part of that. So we've been working on that record right now. So yeah, man, all good with those guys. And they don't have any animosity. They understood why I need to be here. And it just was perfect timing too, because Ace just came off the road with faster and he just kind of jumped in and has been able to, to swing both bands for the last year almost. And it's, it's really worked out perfectly. So. And, and LA guns is, is great as they are. And uh, I love, uh, I don't want to say teasing you because that's a bad word, but I, lo I love mentioning this all the time. On the Poison Poisoned album, the album credits that you got are for hand claps. That is the greatest yeah, album I, credit ever. 
You want to know the funny thing is, is the first two platinum plaques I ever got, one was from the Counting Crows and one is from Poison. And you want to know what I did on both of those records? Hand clap. I hand clap. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 40 some odd years trying to, you know, playing drums, bass, guitars, writing songs, you know, and what do I end up getting awards for? For hand clapping. Who would go figure? Isn't that pretty funny? That that is great. So so you were. You're I guess the, I found my niche. You're the go to you know, guy for hand claps. Man, I'm telling you, you've never heard anybody hand clap or shake a tambourine like me. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Uh, and then just pretty real funny, quick, yeah. since you you have come off the road, you of course did uh, an album with William Shatner, and you were uh, instrumental in getting an interview for me with with William. And of course, you've been working with David Hasselhoff. Where where is that project? Is it finished? Is it out did i miss it yep nope it's it's finished we're wrapping it all up todd rundgren's playing on it we've got all these incredible people elliot easton from the cars is playing on it and james williams from the stooges is on it and uh oh my god we got so many people um you know he's huge over in europe he still does well over there and still sells out 10 15,000 people every night and so you know it'll be put out it'll be international um and it was an interest, strange and interesting project. And uh, but I'm actually working on a new, a new, a third William Shatner now. So we're we're just kind of keeping the ball rolling and staying busy doing strange and weird projects. Oh, that's great! And of course, I'm assuming that you got your hand claps on on both of those albums. Without a doubt, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, the best chance you have of an album being successful is to have me hand clap on it. Well, apparently the the black crows and poisons were were successful. So uh, let it us. Would, uh, it would seem. Yeah, it would seem. Hey, uh, w- 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 did you say uh, platinum albums for both of those? Yeah, it's uh, both the albums both went platinum worldwide on total album sales. That that has got to be the motto on the business card. If you want platinum, I'm you. I'll clap you there. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. My hand claps will get you plaques. Oh, it will. So uh, let's let's head over to uh, to Billy Duffy. The band, of course, is celebrating 30 years of Sonic Temple, and no, no Adam Hamilton hand claps. But but there is a remaster coming out in August, and just maybe they might do some added studio work to to get them in there. Right? That would be terrific. That would be great. Here he is, the one, the only guitarist extraordinaire. Billy Duffy. We are speaking with uh, guitarist Billy Duffy of uh, The Cult. They are, of course, uh, celebrating 30 years of Sonic Temple, and I had a chance to see the band on June 1st in Montreal at the MTELUS. Uh, Billy, that show, spectacular, and I think that, that Montreal fans in particular, much like they have a love of Iron Maiden and Metallica, they have a love, a deep love, of The Cult. Um, yeah, yeah. There's definitely been several instances of uh, very, very exciting uh, audience reactions up there for the band over the years, um, and that was that was definitely um, up there. You know, the uh, the roof raiser when that was whatever that venue was once. I remember saying once we came off stage, I was like, "Oh, that's what they mean when they say they they raise the roof." You know, they're very vocal in their. Uh, you feel like the ceiling's going to come down because they're so uh, enthusiastic. It was great. Yeah, it was a good night. I'm glad you caught it. Yeah, yeah, and I've caught the last few here. So, so let me talk to you just real quick here. 
There is sure. going to be a 30th anniversary edition of Sonic Temple coming out in August via Beggar, Beggar's Banquet Records. Talk to me a little yes. bit about what is on there. The The information at this point, and we're in June, is somewhat scarce. So are we getting two discs, three discs, four discs, live stuff, demos? Oh, what are we getting? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different formats, um, you know, vinyl, CD. I believe there's even cassettes for those of you who are uh, so painfully hit that you're uh, re reevaluating the use of cassettes or that old that you've still got a cassette player. But we are doing some funky, fun things on cassettes. Uh, it's pretty comprehensive. Um, it's pretty much it's it's what we had. There's a few demos that got struck by Ian because they really weren't. You know that he, he was he didn't feel that they were like good enough, but for the most part, it's nearly everything we have. Um, there's a live show we did in Wembley in England that was fairly, you know, typical of the tour we did that year for Sonic Temple. So um, that was recorded by the good old Beeb, the BBC. So we've got we haven't got the full show, but we've got whatever they broadcast. Um, in Britain in 1989, which is, I think, about an hour. Um, that was So we've got that. There's a bunch of different stuff. You know, I think it's a fairly fairly comprehensive uh, selection of, of, of everything you could possibly want to hear. We did a lot of demos on it, Sonic Temple. We were, Bob Rock, the producer, was very thorough and keen on us demoing before we went into the studio. So there are some, you know, pretty well-developed demos as well add some real funky stuff where you can tell we're just like jamming ideas out. You know, I mean, really it's for the fans, you know, I mean, we're not, we're certainly not trying to reinvent the wheel or anything. It's, it's, it's a fan driven demand for the track. And, you know, luckily we're still, uh, have a good relationship with beggars banquet. So they're trying to make it as uh, cool a package as possible. And, uh, yeah, definitely. So August sometime around August, I'm not exactly sure when it's going to come out, when it's going to hit the streets, whatever that means these days, it's going to get, get into the three shops that are still standing. Well, yeah, it'll make it to uh, to Amazon and Spotify, but no, I'm looking forward to it. So, so yeah. l l let's talk about this album and, and working at little Mount, uh, sorry, little Mount, little mountain sound studios in Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. And working with Bob rock. And, and by the way, we are speaking on, uh, June 10th today, and it happens to be Mickey Curry's birthday. So get out, really? It absolutely is. Really, I see that I didn't know. That I didn't know. Mickey Curry was born a... June 10th, 1956. So when you're done, you're, you're going to have to phone him and say, "Hey, mate, pretend that you remembered." <laughs> yes, I will. That cheered him up. If I've still got his number, yeah, that was. Um, it's been a while since I seen Mickey. He was a character. It's interesting that you mentioned Mickey Curry because that that he was kind of pivotal uh, in a way. Bob was very insistent. The demos we did were with two other drummers because the band didn't have a full time permanent drummer at that point. And Matt Sorum, who went on to do quite well for himself um, after the call, um, he didn't join the band until we were going out on the road. So he never played on Sonic Temple. He just played the songs live. So we were in that kind of weird situation and Bob, you know, was very insistent that Mickey with his kind of R&B, Hall and Oates, 
background of drumming. He's more of a swing drummer, um, fitted what the cult were doing more. And obviously Bob knew him from Mickey's longtime gig, which is Brian Adams. Um, so uh, out of Vancouver, obviously. So that's how Mickey got the gig. And he was great. He really did some tremendous stuff. Firewoman. You know, the swing backbeat on the way he manages to drive the song along, but keep it kind of in a pocket. It's very, uh, you know, there's a lot going on behind the curtain with Mickey Curry. He's a, definitely a dynamic, uh, a dynamic swing. I guess swing drum is the best way you can describe it if people kind of get what I'm talking about. He's not just a basher. No, and, and, and he, you know, he's also done stuff with Hall and & Oates and, and Alice Cooper. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he is great. Well, so, but I did want to ask you about the, about the three different drummers because you did, of course, have Eric Singer, who went on to be in Kiss, and you had uh, Chris Taylor. Talk to me about why you had sort of three drummers going on because you sort of had three sets of semo- demos in a sense. Why not just say, all right, Eric, you're the guy, go for it. Or, hey, Chris, you're... Why did we sort of? Well, Bob made that. Bob made that decision. That was Bob's decision, really. Um, ultimately, as producer, he has final say, and uh, you know, he just felt that you know, while Eric was a great drummer, he wasn't suited maybe to the what we were trying to do with this particular record, which might have upset him. Ironically enough, Eric Singer's birthday is the same day as mine, and we're exactly the same age. That's just a little bit of birthday trivia for you. But, um, so, but, but yeah, so, but Hey, you know what? Eric did great. You know, he had bad lands and then of course he's been in kiss for, you know, that's a great job. You know, how great is that? That's a, that's a great gig. And uh, now when you release the 30th anniversary, are some of these versions with the different drummers going to appear or are those? Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. They're on there. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. So, okay, so so talk to me about working with Bob because, you know, he comes from the Payolas. He 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 does. Um, uh, had he done? No, he hadn't done Metallica at that point. But he 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 did. You know, Doctor no. Feel Good. He's he's sort of more of a, a, a I don't want to say a pop producer, but he knows how to make it sound slick. Was the cult needing to sound slick and big for radio and MTV, or was he just hey he's a good producer? Let's just use him. Um, yeah, the Bob, I was a bit interesting story. Yes, he'd really only done, I, I actually met him in Vancouver when we were touring electric and, uh, I met him through a guy called Laird Doyle, who was his guitar tech and Laird so, and I somehow became drunk, drunken strip club buddies. And, um, he, I, I don't know how that happened, but we definitely were going to a lot of uh, hanging out a lot. And he said, Oh, the guy I work for, Bob, wants to meet you. He's a big fan. He loves English music. You know, he's very much an Anglophile when it comes to his taste in music. Um, they're playing a gig tonight. It was a night off for the call, and his band Rock and Hide, which is essentially what was left of the Payolas, um, were doing a gig. I'd never heard of Bob Rock. I'd never heard of the Payolas. I'd never heard of Rock and Hide. But I did like Laird. So I thought, all right, well, let's go and check it out. And I kind of jammed with them. Uh, dressed in some ridiculous outfit um, that I can only blame on alcoholic poisoning and um, became very friendly with Bob and just hit it off with him right away. And just that was that. Nothing happened. And then I heard an album came out um, by um, called Kingdom Come. And at the time, the context was that 
people were really reaching for that Zeppelin sound, you know, heavier and people were really going back, you know, the, the final effects of punk rock had gone away and people were digging into rock and really trying to like mine the early rock. And we felt my opinion was whilst I wasn't that keen on the obvious plagiarism of kingdom come, I did like the sounds and I looked beyond, you know, my prejudices against the, uh, that and listened to what Bob had done. And I believe that was one of his first productions. So, um, and then, you know, I knew he'd cut, I kind of then backtracked and learned that he'd worked with, um, Bruce Fairburn a lot, um, as an engineer and, um, but, but I honestly had no idea of his back history. He's one, you know, the Payolas are one of those Canadian bands who never really were known outside Canada, as far as I could tell, you know, um, so that was Bob, and we just kind of swung the bat. I mean, I remember talking to Ian and saying, I've met this guy, I think he's a really good, you know, he's just got a vibe. You know, like he's just, you look him in the eye, he's a straight shooter, he's like an alpha male, but he's got like compassion, and he's talking the right thing. And he, Bob just said to me, look, I, I'm a big fan of your band. I thought the Love album was tremendous. I liked Electric a lot too, but I think in moving between both, you've left a little something behind. And what I want to do is take some elements from the Love album and from Electric and kind of make the ultimate cult album. Um, that was his kind of manifesto. Um, and that's kind of what he wanted to achieve. And, you know, we got on with him being Canadian. Obviously, we're English, me and Ian and Bob had basically been, came to London when he was a young guy and saw all these 70s rock bands who weren't even that big. And he's just a total Anglophile. So while he has his North American kind of lived in North America and grew up there and grew up on FM American Canadian radio, he also understands the obscurities and the nuances of 70s English rock that might not have made it over here as much, you know, and that helped a lot you know, for reference points of when you're trying to write music and, you know, people aren't heavy handedly like pushing you down some, you know, musical cul-de-sac because they really don't understand the, the, the nuances involved in it, you know. So that's Bob. And then, you know, we, we it was a good gamble. He did, he, he's had a pretty good career, hasn't he, since then? Yeah, he has. And and <laughs> speaking for, for, you know, a Montrealer who used to see the payolas on, on much music, you, you went, oh, he went on to be that guy? Oh, it, it was, yeah. you know. Um, so let me just quickly sort of A-B this between the Electric album, because how was Bob different in his approach to what Rick Rubin was doing? They're, they're just very different guys. They get the job done. I mean, Rick, we were one of the first bands, if not the first band that Rick Rubin, with with a lot of assistance from George Draculius, has to be said. You know, it wasn't just Rick. They were very much a partnership. Uh, and Rick was the senior partner, but they, they were in, um, Rick was, you know, new, new at the game and he'd done the Beastie Boys and he'd had a lot of, you know, he had Death Jam and with Russell Simmons and they were involved in that kind of New York, you know, metal meets kind of hip hop scene. But Rick just loved early rock and roll, early rock. I mean, he, we met him and, I think what it was with Ricky, he just, he's a different style of guy. He doesn't pretend to be musical. He just knows what's good. He knows what he likes. He believes in what I, I consider to be like the certain pillars of rock, like 
early ACDC, early Aerosmith, early Zeppelin. These are the pillars of modern rock music. And if you don't like that, you're not going to get along with Rick. If you don't think that that is really, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's the mountain that you need to go to. And once we'd established that we were all quite partial to those bands, um, me and Ian, you know, the difference was, though, and this is a very important point that, that might need illustrating for some people who are interested. Rick is very much a reducer. You need your songs fully realized with Rick. You, re- you, need, you need your songs. I don't know whether people understand. Sometimes bands go in the studio and they don't really have the music fully worked out and the lyrics and the melodies. They have a pretty good idea, but they need a producer to really help assemble. Um, generally, bands who've been on the tour a lot, bands who've had a successful album then had to spend two years on the ro- road promoting it, so hadn't really had the time to write the next record. You need you need sometimes a producer who can come in and, and, and see where you're headed and help you get there. Rick Rubin is more of a guy who's like, wants to hear what you've got, can understand it. He'll work out what he feels is good about it. But if the content isn't there, Rick's not going to sit with you and help you create the content. And that's the biggest difference between the two guys, I believe, in their, in their techniques. They both have had incredible success. And I'm thrilled to have worked with both of them and I consider them both friends um, and nothing but good to say about them. But we had a situation where we went to try and work with Rick again. And we did a single for a movie called, uh, the movie was called Cool World or something. We got, somebody wanted us to do a single. So we did a song called, a song called The Witch. And we used drum beats because there was only me and Ian. We didn't have a rhythm section at the time. And that worked tremendously well. But we went then to try and do an album with Rick and we just didn't have the material written. We weren't sure where we were going to be. It was kind of the eponymous album, The Cult. Grunge had happened. We were redefining what The Cult was going to be. We, and, you know, Rick at that point just couldn't help us. You know, we, 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 we'd done one good track, but one good track isn't an album. And we failed. But then, of course, Bob came in, and we made that album up in Vancouver, which is the second album we've made up there. Sonic Temple was made in Vancouver. And The Cult was made in Vancouver in 94 in that kind of post-grunge. I mean, Kurt Cobain actually died while we were in the studio. And um, Ian references in that in one of the lyrics. And, you know, it was just that weird transitional time where 80s rock had definitely run its course. Seattle bands had taken over and were much more on point and much more vibrant and we're really talking about what people wanted to hear about. And uh, that was the period where, you know, so, so that's a little illustration of, you know, we've kind of went through this with both those guys. And um, that's how we ended up with Bob because Bob can help you perhaps. And, and the main reason is Bob, Bob's a songwriter, guitar player himself, whereas Rick isn't a musician, you know, right. on electric Rick had George to kind of say, you know, Rick would say, you know, play that chord, that, that, that kind of Englishy chord that ACDC use. And you know what I mean? Cause he didn't, he didn't have, he didn't have the vocabulary because he wasn't a musician. He was more of a DJ and a, and a, and a, and a visualizer. 
But he knew what he wanted to do. That's not to diminish him in any way. And sometimes that's even better because he's not caught up in the minutia. He just knows what he wants. You know what I mean? And and he doesn't get bogged down in the nuts and bolts of it. So those were the differences, you know, and, um, you know, we were still on good terms with both of those guys. And, you know, just, just between me and Ian and the way things have worked out, we've generally ended up using Bob more, you know. Well, I'm I'm going to say it's probably because he's Canadian, because we yeah, <laughs> definitely because everybody's nice. Everybody's yeah, nice, and and right, we we don't criticize you too much in the studio. We go, oh, that sounded terrific. Play play that again. Um, yeah, you just... apologize on our behalf for us. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm going to ask you just a, a random question, then I'm going to get right back to the cult. But uh, Mike Peters of right. the Alarm is my interview on Thursday, and of course you worked oh, with right. him. Right, and a great guy, and, and you work, and he has. They've got a new album out, and all that stuff. But you did yeah, work yeah. on a project called Color Sound. Just if you can, just yeah. sort of, not necessarily give me a sound bite, just but but just talk to me about that project and that time. You know, you were away from the cult. You're working with Mike. Um, it was just, it was great. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Me and Mike are very good friends. We have a lot in common. We're very alike. Um, I ran into him the call after the album I just referred to with the call in 94, the band kind of broke up for a while from 95 through to 99. And in that period, I moved back to England from California. I just, I, I relocated to England, started seeing Mike out at events and now sort of common interests in, you know, the outdoors, hiking, um, football, this and that we just became friends we were really just hanging out more we, we didn't really think of the band thing and then eventually the guitars came out and i would imagine the color sound it is a great album it was probably the music that would have been the next cool album had there been it did, you know I, I i did a lot of the writing on color sound which is what mike wanted he wanted to sing on somebody else's music more than do what he normally does which is you know write and sing his own stuff um, you know, the idea was that, you know, it, it wasn't solely me writing the music, but it was it was a lot more like that. Where, where So I, I guess in retrospect, the Colour Sound album would have been the bare bones of what would have been the next Cult album had the Cult stayed together um, in that period. So, you know, and it was good times. And really, I, I honestly wouldn't have... I would have stayed, I had no intentions of coming back to America or anything, but I got the phone call from Ian in 1999, you know, hey, do you want to want to get the band back together? You know, and, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I might be many things, but stupid isn't one of them. So, you know, I mean, I always love, so, so unfortunately that's the way it worked out, but, you know, it seems to have worked out great for everybody anyway, but you know, Mike knew that. Mike wasn't, you know, he's probably a bit upset because we put a lot of effort into Colour Sound. But, you know, the cult's my thing. And, you know, I, you know I'm not going to not do the cult. You know, it's always going to be my number one. Okay. You know, I only do other things. If the cult's not available to me, that's when I'll do other stuff. You know, I would never do other stuff and turn down the cult, you know, because that's just so much part of who I am. And, my story that, you know, cult's always number one. And then, you know, if the cult's not around or we're on a break or whatever and something comes up, I'll do it. But, you know, the cult's my thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're the kings of chaos and all that other stuff. Um, 
Let me oh, talk. good fun. Actually, very good and make me a better guitar player. I've really enjoyed that. Um, you know, I had a complete shift. When in the 80s, I was like, I didn't ever want to jam with anybody or do anything because I felt that it would kind of tarnish. Like I wanted to keep my 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 riffs and my stuff as pure as possible. Um, it was just a very childish point of view. But as I've gotten older and kind of relaxed a bit and, you know, perhaps matured, I've thoroughly enjoyed and learned so much from playing in those things with Kings of Chaos and all those different players. I mean, you know, getting to play ZZ Top songs with Billy Gibbons. I mean, it's like, you know, he's like a master. You know, he's like the blues master. Like, he's the real deal. You know, Gibbons is the real deal. There's a lot of phony, baloney, blue-eyed, you know, blues guitar shredders out there. And to me, they don't hold a candle. You could tie all of them together and get them to play a million notes and they wouldn't count for three notes of Billy Gibbons, you know. And so to me, that was like what I was looking to get out of that was education and be challenged to learn. And, and all the other bands I got to play with, all the great guys, you know, and, and, and it wasn't my band and it was fun. And I enjoyed it. And I had a big smile on my face because somebody else was worrying about the details. <laughs> you know, I just had fun. Like, you know, like Steve, I know you've interviewed Steve Stevens and it's just great for us. I mean, get to play what with Steve, who I've known for 30 plus years, you know, uh, who's a tremendous guitar player, you know. So those things are good fun. Steve Steve is, is, is absolutely fantastic. Now, um let me go over here just real quick to to Hidden City. Hidden City is the last sort of full album by the band. Um, yeah. Where do you see yourself moving forward in terms of new music? I know that Ian has given interviews and says, well, the cult is not a legacy act. And I saw your show, like I said, in Montreal. That That is not a legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a band that is as vibrant as they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago, in this case, with Sonic Temple. Where do you see yourself moving forward with new cult music and and delivering twelve new songs or ten new songs and and saying okay fans yeah it's it's a, yeah no we yeah we that's a good question I mean we're definitely it seems to take a lot longer than it did you know to 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 amass material you know it just seems to you just almost have to let it line up and um, we've definitely got plans to do it but you know and I, but it, there's not like a big rush on it i think you know so um hidden city did so well in a lot of ways that i i don't want to rush into just putting something out for the sake of it you know i mean it's always got to be uh, quality now not quantity so i don't think the fans are gonna just vanish now they've been with us this long and i think that um hidden city did so well to, to kind of, you know, it, it set the platform and the kind of feeling of like, well, you know, we made a pretty strong album. Now we can go out and enjoy, which I'm doing. I'm completely absor absorbed in playing the Sonic Temple stuff. You know, to me, it's just heaven because I'm a 70s guy. And just to get to play this kind of, what to me was like my 70s rock album, you know, no limitations, just make the best rock record you can make, you know, without worrying about is it cool or is it punk rock or is it not punk and can you do this? And, you know, because you did that, you shouldn't play this. And, you know, all that just went out the window. And, um, you know, we just really, 
got into it and made, you know, I mean, Ian describes it as cinematic. I'd agree with that. You know, for me, it was just trying to channel all 70s rock albums that made me want to be a guitar. Just not lose that kind of punk rock, um, you know, attitude that's in the DNA there. You know, it's in the mix. In the same way it's in the mix of bands like Guns N' Roses, Billy Idol. It's in there. doesn't mean you're going to play punk rock, but it means it's in your DNA. It's, I grew up with it and seeing it and being at punk gigs in the 70s. So I experienced that, and it's part of the, like a palette, you know, it's in there. You know, it's a colour I go to sometimes, you know, musically, and it's what helped form me for better or for worse, you know. So I've kind of accepted it now, you know. All right, so you you mentioned Guns N' Roses, so I'm just going to have to go there for a second. The, the band opened for you in 87, including shows in, in Montreal and Verdun. Well, in, no, abs- absolutely. But let's be, be honest, they did open for a lot of people after that. We were just, I think, the first band to actually invite them out on a proper tour. Oh, absolutely. I, I might be wrong. No, no, no. They, they, they the opened for band, Iron yeah. Maiden and they opened for that. But but what did, did you... Later, s- later. We were the first band to take them out from being like an L.A. band and, and take them on a national tour. Yeah, we took them out all over the wilds of Canada, didn't we? You really did. So what was that like? I mean, could you see in them and in their performance that this wasn't just another opening band and this was like, yes. oh boy, okay. So so what did you see? Yes. Just authenticity. They were the real deal. They lived it and they lived it like they played it and it was not phony at all. You know, it just wasn't. There was no pose with Guns N' Roses. There really was, there was never a pose. They are the real deal. And they were the real deal then. I remember a funny conversation. I remember where it was too. We were sitting at the Bronco Bowl in Dallas, which is a really cool venue that's been demolished now for some condos. And um, it was a bowling alley, but they used to put gigs on. And a famous old venue. And that was part of the same tour in 87. And they were the special guests opening for us. I remember sitting and Ian was talking to Axel and there was various, you know, attractive girlfriends around and, it was just all very fun and rock and roll. And I remember Ian saying, you guys are going to sell so many more records than we are. You know what I mean? You're just going to go. And, they, and, and I remember Axel laughing and the band laughing, going, yeah. You know, because at that time we probably sold, we'd gone gold with Electric and they'd probably sold a fifth of that, you know, right at that moment in time. So that was Ian's kind of premonition of what was going to happen, you know what I mean? Just a spectacular bill and 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 I'll move off away from from that real quick but did was was it there was the cult the opening band or the, sorry the headliner and Guns N' Roses the opening band and you never really had a lot of interactions other than maybe that one conversation or was no, it No 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 quite the opposite. We okay. were very good. We were firm fast friends. We spent time on each other's buses and it was just one big he meshed, you know, sometimes that happens with bands when you just get on so well that you just basically intertwine and you're on the tour together. There are tours where, you know, you have a band who you just don't really get along with or not that it's negative, but there's not really a real connection of friendship. And that's fine. You know, you do your gig, they do theirs. There's no no tension. But with Guns N' Roses and all, there was just a friendship that kind of forged through misadventure and piracy on the high seas and um you know we're still friends to today pretty much 
Oh, that's great. Now, I know we've reached 25 minutes, in fact, 29, so I, I don't know if I have a chance for another one or two questions. But Yeah, ask a couple. Just ask a couple more questions. What, oh. Anything you, you feel you really want to ask? Well, yeah, I just want to I just want to go back to the uh, to the Sonic Temple tour currently and and two questions. First of all, it it wraps yeah. up sort of officially in September, but there's really no dates after June 22nd until September 13th. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Is this something that it was sort of a, a limited run and thank you for coming or do you want to sort of move it forward? into 2020 or at least into maybe november get it all go, going all the way up to christmas perhaps what's what's sort of the the well, the well you know in the in the in the new well in the you know the brave new world of um you know rock and roll touring as it is you know and it, it's a very fluid you know it, it, touring in 2019 is isn't even the same as to, touring in 2016 i mean it's a fast moving dynamic business um live work now for and i'm sure everybody is more than aware of why um and there's still really only seven days in a week you know no matter what way you shave it down you know there's a million bands who've reformed a million new bands um and they're still all competing for the same oxygen you know there's still only one weekend people still work monday to friday you know the weekend you know it is what it is so for us, we, we, you know, if there's a demand, we'll go out and play, you know, but we're not really, I don't think the cult is ever again going to be that like, here's a 11 month, 12 month tour. And we're going to go from every little town, you know, that, that those days are gone, but we are, the, the idea is we're open for business and we're, we're, we're working on several different tours now. Um, but you know, not, as much as it matters, you know, in the eighties, there was other ways that income would come in to keep your band afloat rather than doing gigs. You didn't look at touring as like something it had to make money. You just went out and promoted your album and you were, you would get money in various different ways. It would come in generally bad loans from people, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's experience talking, you know, you generally get low, you were spending your own money. Um, However, these days that's not the case because there isn't all that other money sloshing about. So it's pretty straightforward, black and white, go on the road, earn some money, sell some T-shirts. You know, that's that's the, the world that we live in right now. You yeah. know, so, you know, we, we, we continue to work. The band's having a lot of fun. We're really enjoying doing this. Um you know, we've happened upon a selection of songs. You know, there's been a little wittering on the internet about people. You know, there's a thing with bands like this phase. You know, we, we, we can only, you know, we're only physically capable of playing like, you know, only Bruce Springsteen can play for three hours and he probably flies in a private jet and stays in a four seasons between shows. You know, in the realities of life in the trenches as a working musician, we do 90 minutes every night as a headline set. It's, you know, 85 of those minutes are hard, heavy rock songs. You know, we're not sitting around twiddling acoustics and, you know, chilling. It's a high energy rock show and it takes it out of you. You know, I mean, I'm not 20 anymore. So we just have to balance all those factors, but we want to take this tour around the songs that we play in addition to the Sonic Temple songs are songs that we feel fit the mood of the moment they might not have fitted hidden city 
or choice of weapon or the electric 13 or any of the other tours we've done in the last 10 years. But for right now, you know, we're trying to contextualize the evening for the fans. You saw it in Montreal. I think it's a good balance. I'm not so caught up about mathematics of is one song off each album we've ever done. It's like, does this flow as a nice evening for everybody? Do we enjoy it? Do we believe in it as a band? Can we put this across and really feel it? And if we do that, then the audience are going to respond. And that's kind of where we go with it. It's a gut thing, you know? It, it, and it, uh, listen, and, it worked. And that's where we're at. It, it yeah, works. It work. It's working. Yeah. It, it works. Yeah, you saw it. I mean, that was a good night, but the, most nights are pretty good. To be honest, the bar on this tour is quite high. Yeah, and I can't see it being... Listen, I, I know Montreal has great rock audiences, but I can't see this not working in any city that goes... It's just, it's a well-put-together set list. It's the, the band is on fire. So so let me end with this, because I know we're, we're over our time, but how is it for okay. you to actually play sort of a, an album set? Because you, you are sort of limited in, 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 in the song selections of playing, you know, the stuff from oh, the Oh, I album. love it. I yeah. Personally, personally, I love it because it allows me to get in one modality as a guitar player, you know, because, you know, we're looking at a 30 plus year span now. And a lot of our newer music has been written and recorded in a pretty contemporary fashion, you know, using uh, computers and pro tools and drum loops and all sorts of things, you know, so when you make records as opposed to writing songs and record them and and there's a big there's a lot of weight behind that last sentence when you so i'll say it again when you make records as opposed to writing songs and record them there's two different modalities and i find that as per, from a personal point of view it's it's absolutely fantastic for me as a guitar player to stay in one mode I'm not jumping between decades and fields and different producers' ideas of how the cult should be and what the cult was into in 2011 versus 87. You know, it's just, I, so, so in answer to your question, it's, it's not, it, for me, it's the most fun of all. I, I struggle sometimes jumping from era to era on stage, one song after another, you know, because they're not all the same. There's that, you know, you're jumping, 10, 12, 15 years apart, longer, whatever, you know, sometimes, you know, songs that are three years old and a song that's 30 years old, 40, 35 years old. And the, it just takes it more out of me to jump between those modalities. If I'm trying to present and honor the music and get in the spirit of it, you know, if I wanted to be lazy, I'd just walk out with one particular guitar. I'd never play a Gretsch because they're harder to play and a lot more hard work. You know, I wouldn't do the things that I try and give the audience the best experience that I can give them. Right. And um, and, and then just uh, there were two songs from the album that you didn't play in Montreal. And I, I looked at the set list. I don't think you've been playing them at all. The uh, Wake Up For Time, no. Soldier Blue. Is that, is that a condemnation of those songs? Are, are you saying they're no good or they just don't fit in the vibe of the show? Yeah, they just didn't fit. And we, we kind of put it to the other three guys in the band, you know, who weren't there when they were recorded. And, and we, you know, me and Ian were saying, do you think we're missing anything by not playing these? And they were all shaking their heads going, no, 
you know, less is more. I think on this particular instance, you know, we we we, we just felt that those two songs I don't think would have added live to the to the experience it, you know i mean if you're a sort of a completist then as a, as a human being yeah it's probably going to rankle with you you know if you need the full collection um it's like oh why they didn't play the last two that's weird i can't sleep tonight but for us it, it didn't cause us a lot of stress and we've never played those two songs live ever okay so you know, as far as I can recall, um, I, 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 I'm, I might be wrong. I don't think we've ever played those two songs live. So, you know, I, I think there's a reason for that. Yeah. See, so on the, on the uh, remastered edition coming out in August, just drop them off. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, absolute pleasure. Yeah. I could go on forever, but absolute pleasure. And thank you for calling in today. And I have to say uh, that show in Montreal was spectacular. And folks that if you if you don't have haven't seen them, go see them and please extend the tour so that fans have a chance to go see. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, you know, we, we have no intention of, of winding this down. You know, it's, it's just my, I think my answer to your question earlier about that really was saying that we, you know, that it's happening. There's more dates being booked. We're, we're looking at other countries, other continents, um, other situations where we can keep this going. So there's no intention of winding it down. There's no end date. That's just when the offers stop coming in. You know, the end date is when people no longer want to see it. Then you know it's done. But up until up until then, we're we're all very happy um, to be doing it. Good, good. And as we say, okay. in, yes. And as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you very, very much today. Oh, oh, chante and um, all oh. the rest of it. Yes. À la prochaine. Okay, buddy. Cheers. Thanks. Nice talking to you then. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, come see us again sometime. It was great. Yeah, my, I'm glad you saw that show. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk.